This episode includes discussions of murder, dismemberment, and the desecration of corpses. Some people may find the material offensive. Listener discretion is strongly suggested for children under age 13. Millions of people all across the world suffer from aviophobia, or the fear of flying. Sure, the statistics say you have a 1 in 11 million chance of crashing in a plane and a 95.7% chance of surviving that crash. But what happens when the plane crashes because of unnatural causes? As far back as the Wright brothers, planes have crashed for seemingly mysterious reasons. While some mysteries are eventually solved, others remain lost to time. And no, we're not talking about the Bermuda Triangle. Today we're going to talk about a real-life horror scenario, one that ended tragically for some 269 passengers and almost put the world on course for World War III. Today we're looking at the mysterious fate of Korean Airlines Flight 007. Hi, I'm Richard. And I'm Molly. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Each week we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it disappeared, we're looking for it. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the podcast. For this week, we'll look into the tragic flight of Korean Airlines Flight 007, also known as KAL-007. KAL was a Boeing 747 commercial airliner transporting some 269 crew and passengers from New York to Seoul, South Korea. On August 30, 1983, the plane stopped to refuel in Anchorage, Alaska before continuing on its way. As the plane made its way to Seoul, it deviated from its usual course and entered Soviet airspace. Within a few hours of its flight, KAL went missing. Its last transmission, a veritable SOS. By September 1st, 1983, Korea, the US, and even Japan tried to find out what happened. But at the center of the search were the Soviets, feigning ignorance over the source of the tragedy. America and the rest of the world were in an uproar. At this point, the disappearance of KAL-007 had been the worst airline disaster in the history of aviation, yet no one knew what happened. People wanted answers. It wouldn't be until 1993, 10 years later, that some kind of closure would be provided. So what did happen to flight KAL-007 and its 269 occupants? That's what we'll be discussing today. First, We'll go into the facts of what we know happened to KAL-007. Then, we'll talk about some of the popular theories pushed around at the time, including being shot down, government spy missions, Soviet captives, 
and even a U.S. cover-up. And unlike many Gone episodes, this mystery actually has a definite answer to it. We know what happened. So without further ado, let's explore the mystery of KAL 007. 1983 was a momentous year for many reasons. The U.S. Congress released a report condemning Japanese internment camps during World War II, and famed Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie was arrested in Bolivia. In pop culture, Michael Jackson's thriller became number one on the Billboard charts for 37 weeks. The final episode of MASH aired, and E.T. won Best Picture in the 40th Golden Globes. And 1983 was also marked by ever-increasing Soviet and U.S. tension. The Soviets were working hard on nuclear tests underground, and President Reagan had cleared the Star Wars program. This was a new defense system designed to counter nuclear attacks with satellite-guided weapons such as lasers. The Soviets were also hard at work on their own defense and detection system called Ryan. This early warning system was designed to warn against preemptive nuclear strikes by America. In response, Reagan continued to amass American forces with joint exercises like Fleet X 83-1, the largest naval exercise held to date in the North Pacific with over 40 ships and 300 aircraft. Suffice to say, things were very, very tense. And things were only going to grow worse. On August 30th, 1983, Korean airline flight 007 departed from New York for Seoul. KAL 007 was an impressive Boeing jumbo jet. Formerly a leisure airline operated out of Frankfurt, Germany, it was later purchased by Korean Airlines for commercial travel. On this day, KAL-007 was nearly maxed to its capacity. It had 246 passengers, including 63 American passengers, one of whom was U.S. Congressman Larry McDonald, a staunch anti-communist and Democratic representative for Georgia. McDonald was on his way with other American representatives to Seoul for the anniversary of the South Korea Mutual Defense Treaty. What was also interesting about this flight was its large number of crew. KAL had about 23 crew members aboard. Even with the 246 passengers, this was still a high ratio for crew members. It's believed that at least six members of the expanded crew were deadheading. Deadheading crew are air attendants aboard a plane who are not technically working. Usually, they are simply on board to get to their next assignment. The plane was operated by Captain Chun Byung-in, his first officer, Sung Dong-wei, and flight engineer, Kim Yu-dong. Their goal was to get everyone to Gimpo International Airport in Seoul, South Korea. The plane was already 35 minutes behind on its departure time and had to make a stop at Anchorage International Airport in Alaska for refueling. At this point in time, the plane's autopilot system would have been updated to the new route. At the time, the Boeing's autopilot system was comprised of four modes. Heading, VOR slash LOC, ILS, and INS. 
Heading deals with the direction the nose of the plane is facing. In this case, the heading function deals with the maintained magnetic course of the plane. It is selected by the pilot. VOR stands for Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Radio Range. This mode allows the plane to know what direction it's going in by tracking radio signals sent from beacons on the ground. This is important as these help maintain where the plane is going by hitting designated check marks along its route. Another important instrument is the ILS, which tracks both vertical and lateral course beacons for the plane. This is how the plane tracks the specific runway it needs to land on, especially if the pilot can't see the runway. Finally, there's INS, the Inertial Navigation System. This maintains the plane's selected course by tracking various waypoints entered into the plane's computer. Once the INS is programmed into the computer, the pilot can turn on autopilot mode and the plane will automatically track its own course. Think of INS as the guardrails on a bowling lane. They keep the plane on course with minimal human effort. There is one caveat, however. If the plane goes more than seven and a half miles off course, the tracking system will shut off. However, an alarm usually sounds if the plane starts to go off course, so long as the correct course is put into the computer. To recap, heading communicates the direction the plane's nose is pointing. VOR slash LOC tracks radio waypoints on the ground. ILS helps pilots land the plane. And INS is the system where waypoints are entered manually to help guide the plane's path. In a nutshell, all of this is to help keep the plane going in the direction it's supposed to go. You might be wondering why all of these technical terms are important. As we delve into the mystery of what happened to KAL-007, we'll look into whether or not the plane disappeared over technical issues or human issues as well. After a brief layover in Anchorage to refuel, KAL-007 was ready to take off again. But at the time of takeoff from Anchorage, there was a bit of a problem. Unfortunately, the VOR beacon at Anchorage's airport was not operational. A VOR beacon, you'll recall, is one of the radio systems on the ground that a plane would use to make sure it was on the right path in the air. But Anchorage's beacon had been shut down for maintenance. KAL-007 received a notice to airmen from Aviation Authority regarding their course. These notices would warn pilots of any problems or potential dangers during their flight route. But the downed VOR beacon wasn't deemed too much of a problem for KAL-007 to continue its flight. All KAL-007 had to do was pass over another VOR beacon at a different airport, and that beacon would be able to send the necessary course instructions. Once the plane received that info, the crew could switch the plane over to the autopilot functions. So the plane departed Anchorage at 1300 Coordinated Universal Time. This is the standard for tracking planes' flight time across the globe. That means they would have left Anchorage at 5 a.m. local time. Air Traffic Control told KAL-007 to head directly to the airport in Bethel, Alaska, 
where they could get the info from Bethel's VOR beacon. From there, the plane was instructed to enter the northernmost of the North Pacific routes. These were the five 50-mile-wide airways that bridged Alaska and Japan. KAL-007 was directed to take the route known as R-20, or Romeo-20. Romeo-20 skirted Soviet airspace, specifically the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula, by about 20 miles. And while tensions were high, this 20-mile space between airways was still deemed safe. Also, so long as a plane's navigation systems were working, the flight crew and pilot could maintain a safe flight. Keep in mind, too, that many of the plane's internal navigation systems depended on the data given to it by air traffic control. So if any data was given incorrectly to the plane, its course could be seriously affected. It's also important to note that the INS mode was necessary for this route, as Romeo 2-0 was out of range from most VOR stations. INS is the mode where the waypoint data is manually entered into the plane's onboard system and which can maintain a course on autopilot as long as it's within a seven and a half mile window of the intended course. It seems like a big risk to take a route with very few VOR stations for the plane to check its course against, but the route saved time and would have gotten the plane to Seoul quickly after the delays from rerouting over Bethel, Alaska. But the caveat was that everything had to be calculated correctly in the INS system. So if anything was miscalculated or off-kilter, KAL-007 could go off course. And there would be little help to offer them. Sure enough, only 10 minutes after departing Bethel, KAL-007 was pointing in the wrong direction. Its heading was 245 degrees, not 220. They were off by a full 25 degrees. For reference, that's nearly three times the limit of the seven and a half mile course correction function in the autopilot computer. So if the plane was put into autopilot while already off course, the plane would simply continue flying in the wrong direction. What's even more horrifying is that it seemed no one noticed. Not the pilot, the crew, not even air traffic control. That's really strange. But if there weren't any VOR radio beacons for the plane to pass by and compare the locations to from the air, I suppose it makes sense that no one would have noticed. So for the next five and a half hours, KAL-007 continued to deviate from its course. And what happened next was unthinkable. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Gone. Within 28 minutes of KAL-007's 5 a.m. takeoff from Anchorage, Alaska, civilian radar at Kenai Peninsula on the eastern shore of Cook Inlet in the Gulf of Alaska tracked a commercial airliner. 50 minutes later, military radar at King Salmon, Alaska also tracked a commercial airliner. This airliner was KAL-007, and it was north of where it was supposed to be. From the plane's perspective, it was off to the right of the designated course. And these stations may have tracked the plane, but neither of them knew that the plane was off course. 
Neither station was even supposed to be specifically tracking planes. All they knew, as we said, was that there was a commercial airliner flying through their radar. That was a pretty common occurrence given the station's proximity to the North Pacific routes. As long as the plane wasn't flying erratically, there would have been no reason for the people at the stations to be suspicious. No reason to suspect that the plane was going anywhere other than where it was supposed to be going. Pretty soon, the plane had deviated six times beyond its supposed course, leaving it more than two nautical miles past the point of expected course deviation. In other words, the plane wasn't on Romeo 2-0, it was flying beside it. This divergence would have prevented the plane from transmitting its position to the small number of VOR beacons in range of Romeo 2-0 because the plane was now flying completely out of range of all the VOR beacons. So to check in with their position, KAL-007 transmitted to another plane that was in the air. KAL-015. Like KAL-007, KAL-015 was on its way to Seoul, South Korea. They were also carrying American representatives for the treaty anniversary, including Idaho Senator Steve Sims, North Carolina Senator Jess Helms, and Senator Carol Hubbard of Kentucky. KAL-015 was only 15 minutes behind KAL-007 in flight time. So KAL-007's flight crew reached out to KAL-015 via very high-frequency radio to request that KAL-015 relay its position. This was to help confirm that KAL-007 was somewhere on the right course. At 1443 UTC, an hour and 40 minutes into their flight, KAL-007 relayed a change in its arrival time to its next waypoint along Romeo 2-0. KAL-007 did this using high-frequency radio rather than the standard very high frequencies. High-frequency radio signals are able to travel longer distances than the very high-frequency signals, but they're also much more susceptible to static and to electromagnetic interference. So they were able to transmit this message successfully, but they weren't able to transmit any information about their location. KAL-007 continued to deviate from Romeo 2-0 and their set flight route. By now, they were more than 60 miles off course. When they were about halfway to the second waypoint marker, the plane entered into the North American Aerospace Defense Command's buffer zone. This area might be more familiar by its later name, NORAD. I think it's pretty safe to assume this area was off limits to civilians. Indeed it was and KAL-007 had just passed into the southernmost tip. This also meant they had passed the international dateline, changing the date from August 31st to September 1st. The international dateline marks the change in time across the world and runs roughly along 180 degrees longitude. By crossing it, you could say that the plane sort of jumped forward in time. While not necessarily a problem for the plane, it did complicate things a bit when trying to solve what happened to the plane. At around 1826 UTC, five and a half hours into their trip, 
KAL-007 requested clearance from Tokyo Air Traffic Control to ascend to around 35,000 feet near Sakhalin Island in Soviet airspace. They hoped to preserve fuel. Keep in mind that at this point in their journey, it is still unclear if they knew they were off course or if they had any idea where they were at all. Suddenly, the plane lurched upward, ascending higher and higher, out of control. The pilots were scrambling to get the plane level again. Meanwhile, passengers were panicking. You can only imagine what was running through people's minds. The pilots tried reaching back out to Tokyo air traffic control, but their radio transmissions came in as static. KAL-007 was on its own. What had happened? KAL-007's last transmission was garbled and static. Tokyo tried reaching out using HR frequencies, but to no avail. Tokyo tried reaching out to KAL-015. KAL-015 also couldn't get an answer. Something had gone very, very wrong. So as of September 1st, 1983, KAL-007 was declared missing and presumably crashed. Word spread like wildfire. The families of the passengers were unnerved. Would they see their loved ones again? Hans Ephraimson Abt fretted over the fate of his daughter, Alice. Alice was a 23-year-old American student who was going to China to study and to teach English. She had been on KAL-007 with the intention of switching flights in Seoul to take her to mainland China. And now she was gone. Hans had one question on his mind. What had happened to his daughter? The U.S. quickly latched onto the story, feverishly alerting all available resources for any available information. Where had the plane crashed? What had happened? And who was responsible? Literally within minutes of KAL-007's disappearance on September 1st, 1983, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan scrambled to get search and rescue operations underway. Both military and civilian ships were called in for immediate search and rescue. Still, everyone couldn't help but wonder how this had happened and who was responsible. It didn't take long for the first theory to spring up. KAL-007 was shot down by the Soviets. Soon, U.S. and Japanese officials realized that KAL-007 had been traveling off course. But what really got them concerned was that it looked like the plane had been skirting the NAADC buffer zone and entering Soviet airspace before its disappearance. While there wasn't hard evidence that the Soviets had shot down the plane, South Korea believed so strongly that this was what had happened that they designated the U.S. and Japan as the primary search agents. As owners of the plane, Korea could designate whomever they wanted to search for the plane. And if the USSR was involved and attempted to salvage the aircraft, the U.S. and Japan were entitled to use force to stop them. Of course, things quickly got complicated when the USSR actually showed up to join the search. 
Since it was believed that the plane crashed somewhere off the coast of Monorone Island, the Soviets also felt inclined to assist in the search. However, they opted to search more on their own. And their involvement in the search only intensified Cold War tensions. The Soviets were incredibly hostile, stonewalling any marine rescue vessels from entering their sovereign waters. They also barged onto civilian ships, threatening crew members and confiscating property. More than once, standoffs were held between U.S. and Soviet ships over who would get to search where. What proved extra damning on the international stage for Soviets was their secrecy. They refused to share or cooperate with any of the search efforts, and reconnaissance from other vessels suggested the Soviets were searching in other areas beyond the designated search zones. Sounds like the Russians definitely knew more than they were letting on. Absolutely. But the biggest shock came just five days after the crash of KAL-007. On September 6, 1983, the Soviets held a press conference revealing to the world that they were, in fact, responsible for crashing KAL-007. While the Soviets refused to give any concrete details, they claimed to have shot down the plane, claiming it was a spy vessel. They then condemned the U.S. for its reconnaissance missions over Soviet territory. They cited the U.S.'s hawkish attitude towards the East as the reason for this tragedy. The U.S. and South Korea were furious beyond words. President Reagan called the shooting down of KAL-007 a massacre and blamed the Soviets' incompetence for the death of 269 innocents. And the families of those lost aboard KAL-007 were shocked and appalled. How could a country shoot down a civilian aircraft so carelessly? The rest of the world also wanted to know how Russians confused a commercial airliner for a spy plane and wondered whether they had deliberately shot down a civilian aircraft. But until they could find the wreckage of the plane... With the reveal that the Russians had shot down the plane, the investigation of KAL-007 was turned over to the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO. This proved to be a rather controversial move, as the ICAO had only one investigation prior to KAL-007, with the crash of Libyan Arab Airlines Flight 114 in February of 1973. But that wasn't the most controversial aspect of the switch. Switching the investigation from the National Transportation Safety Board to ICAO meant that the Reagan administration was effectively precluded from revealing any sensitive military information pertaining to the U.S.'s involvement in using spy planes to do recon over Russia. You see, the ICAO lacked the authority to subpoena persons or governments without their voluntary cooperation. That means unless the USSR, or the US for that matter, voluntarily gave up documents pertaining to the crash, ICAO had to rely on other sources for their investigation. To many, this raised more alarms. Why would the Reagan administration do this? Some felt it was an illegal move. Others felt this was done to hide any embarrassment of the administration in the event that any fault on the US's part could be concealed. 
Other reports suggested that this might have had to do with propaganda at the time, keeping the narrative centered on the Russians being an evil empire, while at the same time limiting information about the U.S.'s covert reconnaissance missions. Sounds like everyone was trying to cover their butts. It's definitely strange that the U.S. would turn over the investigation to an authoritative body that had little power, especially given the magnitude of the situation. It very well could be the U.S. was hiding something, which only raised further questions. Was it the U.S.'s fault that KAL-007 had been tracked improperly? Did it have to do with spy missions they were running out of Alaska? But while people began to question the motives of the U.S.'s investigation, a major breakthrough happened. By September 9, 1983, the first sign of the passengers' fate arrived. Human remains washed ashore the north side of Hokkaido, Japan, 30 miles from Sakhalin, where the plane was last detected, and 35 miles from its supposed crash site near Monoron Island. Thirteen body parts in total were found, most unidentifiable. The ICAO concluded that these remains were carried by currents from Soviet waters across the Soyuz Strait. Soon, more objects began to wash ashore. Shoes, seats, newspapers, paper cups, even a pair of dentures. Interestingly enough, all these items came from the passenger cabin, suggesting perhaps the cabin had been punctured or destroyed. Either way, it did not bode well for finding any survivors. That same day, Rear Admiral William Cockle assumed command of the search and rescue effort for the joint American-Japanese search. Furthermore, the mission was reclassified from a search and rescue to a search and salvage operation. If it hadn't been official before, it was now. It looked as though there were no survivors. Hans was devastated. Together with the families of those who had been lost, the world mourned for the victims of KAL-007, victims of a seemingly pointless murder. Yet even while grieving, Hans wanted answers. The world wanted answers. For the next month, underwater operations were conducted, searching a 60-square-mile area in both international and Soviet territory, much to the Soviets' chagrin. They didn't want anyone trespassing in their territory. So the Soviets continued to hamper the U.S. and Japanese search parties. Not only did they continue to block and board vessels, they tampered with U.S. sonars, attempted to ram rigs, and even placed false pingers to mislead search parties. This and more was reported in the ICAO's first report to the U.N. on September 15, 1983. On September 26, 1983, the acting KGB General A.I. Romanenko met with seven delegates from the U.S. and Japan. He handed over surface findings the Soviets had found thus far. These included mostly articles of clothing such as footwear and shirts. Many still believed the Russians were hiding something. Based on reports, the Russians were keeping a tight radius around a 60-mile search area around international and Soviet waters. About a month later, the U.S. and Japan's search was expanded to a 225-mile area, reaching the western part of Sakhalin Island. The goal 
was to find any sign of wreckage from the plane, anything that could lead to answers. Sadly, this search was also unsuccessful. Around this time, the head of the ICAO, Kaj Frostel, tried to get the Russians to turn over any and all data regarding KAL-007's shootdown. These included flight recorders, transcripts, ATC tapes, anything and everything they had found. I can't imagine the Russians agreed. You would be correct. They absolutely refused to comply. And what's worse, the ICAO couldn't do anything about it. More and more, it looked like the Soviets held all the cards and they weren't going to reveal their hand. The Soviets seemed like a dead end, so ICAO turned to the U.S. to continue its investigation. In the event of an aviation disaster, any radar tracking dealing with the incident are usually impounded. Yet in this case, all radar data from Anchorage were recycled within 24 to 30 hours. But KAL-007 went down about five hours after it left Anchorage. That means, theoretically, the data should have been immediately saved. And it should have been. But it wasn't. And people couldn't understand why. Many suspect the tapes were destroyed to conceal something. The question was, what? Again, people began to point back towards the question of the U.S.'s spy missions or whether they knew the plane was off course early on and did nothing about it. By the end of October, the operations to find the wreckage of KAL-007 had concluded. Then, on December 2nd, 1983, the ICAO released its official report. They concluded that KAL-007 had unintentionally violated Soviet airspace, which was highly illegal and was shot down somewhere off Monorone Island. This error in navigation was probably caused by a failure to select a correct INS mode and for being too far off course to correct it. Based on simulations run by Boeing and Lytton, the ICAO concluded that the crew either did not notice this error or failed to perform necessary navigational checks. It was a rather dissatisfying ending. Many criticized the ICAO for not being harder on the Soviets. The families of the victims felt nothing had actually been resolved, as they still had no idea what happened to their loved ones. In response to this, Hans and the other affected family members created the American Association for Families of KAL-007. For the next 10 years, this group lobbied Congress and airliners for better disclosures regarding airline disasters and better compensation for victims' families. The families also went into a long litigation with Korean airlines, yet this proved an uphill battle, as without evidence of pain and suffering, the airliners would only compensate families with the bare minimum. This would become part of the long battle fought by Hans and the association. Still, there were some improvements brought about despite the horrendous tragedy. The FAA closed Route Romeo 20 for about a month until flight safety could be verified. 
It also established a new radar system on St. Paul Island in the Bering Sea. Plane autopilot systems were modified to make it more obvious which system a plane was operating under, and the U.S. decided to extend air traffic coverage with military radar to help track planes better. President Reagan also announced the release of GPS, or Global Positioning Systems, to the public, free of charge. In 1986, the U.S., Japan, and USSR set up a joint air traffic control system to monitor aircraft over the North Pacific. They also set up direct communication between the three countries in the event of further issues with air travel. But even with all that, it didn't feel like there were any concrete answers about what had happened. And when no one could offer anything satisfying, people began to come up with their own theories as to what happened to KAL-007. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. Despite the 1983 report from ICAO, many felt that there were still more questions than answers as to the fate of the aircraft and its passengers. To make matters worse, Russia did little to pay for its destruction of KAL-007. This led others to believe that perhaps even the U.S. government may have had a hand in the crash of KAL-007. For the next 10 years, theories regarding what happened to KAL-007 and its occupants circulated and evolved, ranging from simple crew failure, U.S. spies, and even Soviet prison camps. Let's start by examining the ICAO's 1983 report. As mentioned earlier, the ICAO suspected that the flight crew had no idea they were off course. But how could that really be? They had all that equipment to help them course correct. Yes, it is suspicious. But here's the catch. This theory may not be too far-fetched. If the INS is off by even 10 degrees when it's programmed, it can throw off the entire navigation system. That means even the course correction of 7.5 miles wouldn't work. But again, I have to wonder why the crew, or even ATC, couldn't have checked to make sure everything was on the level. Again, to the pilots, everything may have seemed correct because the incorrect data was read as the true heading. So you're saying it's possible that they were given the wrong readouts and were none the wiser? Exactly. It's possible that while the plane was in the ramp position while waiting for takeoff from Anchorage, that the flight engineer input the incorrect longitude. I'm surprised that that wouldn't have been noticed by the computers. Here's why. You only need the latitude to be correct for the platforms of the autopilot function. So if that was entered correctly, the computers would have read everything is okay, even with the wrong longitude. So if everything had been put in correctly, then the horizontal indicator would have alerted the pilots to any form of course alteration. Another point of fact is that the weather radar would have alerted them to their strange flight path. The weather radar has two modes, ground mapping and weather surveillance. Ground mapping would have been key because it would have let them know if they had flown over land or not. So. If KAL-007 did fly over Kamchatka or the Sakhalin Islands, the flight crew would have noticed. But weather surveillance mode only measures cloud coverage and thunderstorm detection. 
So if the plane was in weather surveillance mode instead of ground mapping mode, they wouldn't have been able to detect terrain beneath them. Another aspect to note is that at the time, airplane culture was such that if the captain said everything was okay, it was okay. Crew members weren't necessarily allowed to question the captain, even if they thought or even if they knew that he was wrong. But those theories only cover what could have gone wrong to make the plane deviate from its course. What if nothing went wrong? What if the deviation was intentional? One theory argued by David Pearson in his 1991 book, KAL-007, The Cover-Up, is that the pilot knew what was going on, and the deviation was actually planned all along. Given the amount of data the crew had at their disposal, it seemed almost impossible for them not to know something was wrong. I don't understand why they would intentionally go into Soviet airspace at the height of the Cold War. It seems needlessly dangerous. Well, another popular theory among conspiracy theorists regarding KAL-007 was that the plane was actually on a reconnaissance mission, testing to see how Soviets would respond. In addition to all of the correction functions, many also pointed out the incongruence of a civilian plane accidentally entering Soviet airspace. The U.S. had multiple radar systems active in the area. If the plane were entering Soviet airspace, these radars should have detected it and alerted the crew. Yet nothing was done. Interesting. We do already know that at least two stations tracked the plane, so that seems like it could be potentially plausible. In 1991, French writer Michel Brun suggested that KAL-007 was a decoy to distract the Russians while the U.S. continued its planned aerial spy missions. Unfortunately, KAL was spotted and shot down, which he suggests led to an actual dogfight between Russian and American forces. I don't know how I feel about this theory. <laughs> Given Cold War tensions at the time, if a massive aerial shootout between U.S. and Soviet planes had broken out, we'd all be recovering from World War III. But the idea of the U.S.'s involvement comes up again and again in these theories. One question that came up repeatedly was about the switching of the investigation to the ICAO instead of the NTBS. This was seen as highly controversial and perhaps even illegal, as the NTBS could take action in situations where the ICAO was extremely limited. Many wanted to know why the government wanted to switch the investigation to a lesser organization. Which I assume brings us to the idea of a U.S. cover-up for their involvement in the KAL-007 mystery. Yes. This would also explain why the air traffic control tapes were destroyed so quickly, despite them being needed for the investigation. My guess is that the U.S. wanted to cover up any involvement with the reconnaissance missions they were doing, which would have violated Soviet-American relations. That would make a good amount of sense. One question that bothers me, as it bothered the families of those lost aboard KAL-007, is about the lack of bodies found. Where had everyone gone? After all, the only physical evidence that was found were 13 mangled body parts that couldn't be identified, along with various luggage and clothes. One of the more gruesome theories was that the bodies were eaten by sea life, like the Japanese crab spider, which are large crabs that feed near the bottom of the oceans. 
This theory has been tossed out the window, though, as crab spiders don't eat bones. There still would have been something left to find. To me, the best theory is the decompression theory. We know that the various clothing items found came from the passenger cabins. It's possible that when KAL-007 was shot down, the hull was breached, causing a vacuum effect that sucked everyone out and scattered them across the sea. As morbid as it sounds, I think that's the most plausible scenario. Though there's one more theory, however, that's quite possibly the scariest. That the Russians not only recovered the plane, but found the crew and passengers as well. We know the Russians shot down the aircraft and were very clandestine in their recovery operations. Indeed. One of the more popular theories is that the Russians knew exactly where KAL had crashed and went in ahead of everyone else. Then, using trawlers and divers, gathered the bodies and covered up any evidence as best they could. One extreme theory suggested that the plane crash landed, but its occupants survived. The Russians got to them first, though, and placed them in prison camps for the remainder of their lives. Talk about a nightmare scenario. Thankfully, there's no real evidence to support the prison camp theory. Regardless of what you believed at the time during the 1980s, everyone wanted answers. And it seemed none would ever be made available. That is, until 1993. By 1991, it had been eight years since the tragic loss of 269 people on KAL-007. In that decade, numerous theories and conspiracies were hatched explaining what really happened. All anyone knew for sure was that the Russians had shot down the plane. But other than that, little was truly known about why the plane was in Soviet territory, or where the plane crashed or what exactly had happened to the passengers. It seemed the families of all those lost lives would never truly find peace. That is, until December 25th, 1991. On that fateful Christmas, the sickle and hammer came down over the Kremlin and the new Russian bars rose above. It was the end of the Soviet Union. With the collapse of the USSR, people once again grew hopeful that answers would finally be revealed as to what happened to KAL-007. And out of those people, Hans Ephraimson Abt took the initiative. That same December, Hans wrote to Senator Jesse Helms of the Committee of Foreign Relations. Senator Helms was on the sister flight of KAL-015 and had almost flown on KAL-007. Hans implored Helms to write to Russia and try once again to get answers. Helms agreed and wrote Russian President Boris Yeltsin. He requested information concerning the survival of the passengers and crew with specific interest in the fate of Congressman McDonald. President Yeltsin agreed to look into it. By June 17, 1992, Yeltsin revealed he had found five memos regarding the fate of KAL-007 along with the plane's flight recorder, CTC tapes, and more. The memos went on to describe how KAL-007 had crashed off Monorone Island after being shot down by Soviet fighter pilots. The wreckage was later found on October 20th, 1983, 50 days after its crash. 
Further scrutiny of the memos also revealed that the USSR had not only lied about finding the plane, but finding the recorders and black box. Despite their claims of the plane being a spycraft, they knew they had shot down a civilian plane and instead opted to conceal the obvious truth and cover up their astronomical mistake. It was everything the families could have wanted and more. By September 11th, 1992, Yeltsin promised to hand the tapes over to the South Korean government along with a transcript of the flight recorders from declassified KGB files. Shortly thereafter, the families of the KAL-007, led by Hans Ephraimson Apt, along with U.S. State Department officials, were invited to Moscow by Yeltsin for a formal apology and to receive additional copies of the data recovered. By January of 1993, the ICAO voted to reopen the case with the new findings. At long last, people were going to find out what really happened. So, what did the Russians find? What really happened to KAL-007? At 15.51 UTC, KAL-007 entered restricted airspace over the Kamchatka Peninsula. This had been designated prohibited airspace by the Soviets at the time. In response to the unidentified aircraft, four MiG-23 fighter jets were scrambled from Smyrnik Air Base. Keeping track of both the MiGs and the commercial airliner proved difficult for the Soviets. Their major radar dish had been damaged 10 days earlier by Arctic gales. This meant they had to rely on less advanced radar systems scattered along the coast, none of which were able to identify KAL-007 as a commercial jet. General Valery Komeski, commander of the Far East District Air Defense Force at the time, ordered the strange aircraft not be shot down until positively identified. However, his subordinate, Anatoly Kornikov, argued that regardless of what it was, it needed to be destroyed. For over an hour, KAL-007 skirted back and forth between the buffer zone and Soviet airspace, all while being tracked by the Soviet military. Finally, KAL-007 was reclassified as a military target and additional fighters were scrambled. Three Su-15 fighters were launched and joined the MiG-23s in their pursuit of KAL-007. It wasn't long until the faster Su-15s caught up to the rear of KAL-007. The Su-15 pilots couldn't identify the aircraft. So, under orders from base, the Su-15 fired warning shots. The problem was, the rounds being used weren't tracer rounds or incendiary rounds, but armor-piercing. That meant they were hard to visually detect. So the only way to detect the rounds was to have them actually hit the plane. Meanwhile, inside the cockpit of KAL-007, everything was going on as usual somehow. Transcripts recovered from the cockpit and black box recordings of flight crew conversations revealed that KAL-007's crew had no idea of what was going on. They had no idea they were in Russian airspace, let alone that they were being followed by fighter jets. In fact, 
The only contact they had was with Tokyo ATC for clearance to ascend higher to preserve fuel. As the plane rose in the air, the pursuing jet fighters overshot the plane and took the ascension as evasive actions. General Kornikov then gave the order for the plane to be immediately shot down. The planes regrouped, and at 1826, UTC re-established visual contact with KAL-007. One of the pilots noted that the plane had flashing lights and thought it looked like a civilian plane. But General Kornikov didn't care. He simply commanded the aircraft be destroyed, saying, quote, destroy the target, carry out the task, destroy it. So at 1826, missiles were locked and fired. Two air-to-air missiles struck the rear of the plane at 35,000 feet. Shrapnel from the plane severed crossover cables that allowed the pilot to control the planes going up and down. This sent the plane shooting up into the air. Three out of four hydraulics were either damaged or destroyed, causing extreme oscillations of the plane. Further records indicate that there was rapid decompression of the fuselage. The pilots panicked and began to radio for help. They now realized they were hit. Then, at 1827 UTC, the recorders cut out. According to reports, it looks like the plane didn't explode, but instead gradually descended until finally spiraling and crashing over Monorone Island. Meanwhile, the Soviets quickly realized that they had made a huge mistake. According to the memos, the Soviets launched two search and rescue operations. The first was authorized from Smyrnik Air Base at 1847, just 20 minutes after the plane went down. Eight minutes later, a second was sent using civilian trawlers. Within three days of searching, the Soviets were able to locate the wreckage off the coast of Monorone Island at depths of 174 meters. An interesting note, the Russians didn't find any bodies either. According to reports from divers, all they could find were similar body parts, but no whole remains. How awful. Looks like that decompression theory holds true. I'm afraid so. But with that, the story of KAL-007 was finally revealed. By the tail end of 1993, the ICAO gave an updated report. They reconfirmed much of what had been in the previous report, but with the additional information the Russians supplied. In the end, they stood by their previous assessment that KAL-007's intrusion into Soviet airspace had been an unintentional error, one not detected by its crew. Yet despite the new report confirming much of the old report, it brought to light new information that helped bring closure to Hans and the American Association for Families of KAL-007. Thanks to the details involving the hull being punctured, Hans was able to win that lawsuit with additional damages for himself and all the other families associated with KAL-007. 
Additionally, the families of KAL-007 successfully lobbied Congress and the airline industry to accept an agreement that would ensure that future victims would be compensated quickly and fairly by lowering the burden of proof for airliner misconduct. So while it was a bittersweet moment, at least the world finally had some understanding about the events surrounding the deaths of 269 innocent people. The fate of KAL-007 was revealed to have been nothing short of a perfect storm of user errors. It was a series of minor miscalculations and misjudgments that led to a horrific tragedy. And though we may never know what happened to the bodies of the passengers, it's nice to know that their loved ones have found some kind of closure. And warring countries were united briefly, if only to ensure that such a tragedy wouldn't happen again. Air travel was improved through new technology, better regulations, and joint efforts to monitor the airways. Though 269 lives were lost, their memories are still honored to this day. Flight number 007 is retired from Korean Airlines rosters, and the Russian government placed a small grave marker on Sakhalin Island near the coast where the plane crashed. And on the island of Wakanai, Japan, a 90-foot tower comprised of 269 stones was erected. Each stone represents a life lost on KAL-007. It stands to this day a reminder of what can happen if we don't all work together to mutually ensure one another's safety. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Michael Pendis and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>